So you've decided to give up that old behavior that's been killing you and all you care for and surrender to a power greater than yourself. That's the first step. Surrender is what opens the prison door. Now it's time to walk through that door and into a whole new way of life. Spirituality, self-care, service, social connection, and the simple daily disciplines that pave the way to lasting freedom. This is Positive Sobriety. Welcome to a brand spanking new episode of the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Hey, I'm Nate Larkin, here with my very good friend, the guy who really makes this thing go, David Hampton. How you doing, David? Hey, I'm doing well. How are you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know what? I, I, it's, I cannot really predict kind of my emotional state on any given day. Uh, you know, I don't go to despair very often. I'm not in mm-hmm. an impressive state, but you know, kind of these waves come and I kind of been riding a wave this week. Been a great week. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it's kind of it might, might have something to do with the fact that I decided to observe dry July. Uh, <laughs> this is now July 7th. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, you know, that that's, uh, you're seven days into dry July and, uh, yeah, how is, yeah. How is it with uh, Dry July? It's, it's great. It's great. You know, when I told some friends that I was going to do it, uh, some of them were worried. They're like, "Yeah, but it's it's coming up on the Fourth of July, and <laughs> kind of like Fourth of July is this canonical drinking uh, holiday." Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but uh, it's, it's, you know, once I just made the commitment, you know, I'm just not going to drink in July, and we'll let August yeah. worry about August. But I'm not going to drink in July. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't tough getting through the 4th of July at all. Although, uh, in the thriving metropolis of Mount Pleasant, Tennessee, where Allie and I now reside, yes, 4th of July is the shit. I mean, it is something <laughs> what happens here. They go all out. It is No, so look, we don't have the big city fireworks display that they have in right. Franklin or that they have in Nashville. Yes. I think we have as many fireworks, though. Wow. And just spread throughout the town. So <laughs> it is, I, I am not kidding you. It is nuts. There are yeah. two fireworks tents that do just a booming business for a month before the 4th of July. Right. There are no regulations against shooting off fireworks in town. None of that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Everybody just comes out into the streets. And as soon as the sun goes down, it's Baghdad here. It's nuts. <laughs> it is oh my nuts. God. Oh, uh, one of my neighbors actually was uh, the owner of one of those tents. And apparently he brought all the unsold inventory. And oh, my God. Pe- people have spent thousands of dollars on, and they're outdoing each other. But, oh, you know, yeah. by, you know, by 10 o'clock, I couldn't see across the street. There was that much smoke on my street. Oh, my gosh. Poor Daisy, our dog. Just <laughs> absolutely terrified. Oh. I mean, yeah, she doesn't do fireworks well. So it but, wasn't you know, dry July for Daisy? <laughs> <laughs> Allie, Allie was dosing her with CBD to get her oh, discount. There you go. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but you know what? It was a lot of fun. I felt very much out of it because, you know, I didn't have any fireworks. And so I'm going to have to figure that into next year's budget. Well, I was going to say, start saving now, because it sounds like in order to participate, you've got to make quite an investment down there. It was interesting in Franklin. You know, we have a little um, Main Street Fourth of July parade, you know, Uh uh, complete with everybody's decorated stroller and bicycle Uh and, you know, to whatever, and the Veterans March and the kids ride along. And it's like, it Uh literally is like something out of the you know, the Norman Rockwell archives down there. Mm -hmm. And my building um, is not far at all from a horse farm uh, that's Mm -hmm. just up the road. And uh, Harlansdale shoots off fireworks, you know, in Franklin. And so 
uh, they'll shoot up the fireworks and uh, everybody goes to the top of the building to drink oh, and watch yeah. the fireworks, which sounds sure, perfectly right. safe to me, right? Why wouldn't, you, <laughs> <laughs> why wouldn't you go lean over the ledge of a building that, yeah. uh, and, yeah. uh, and what, you know, drink a lot and watch fireworks. But, um, but yeah, it's, you know, it's just a thing that uh, it's small town life at its best. Of course, Franklin's not as small as it used to be by any means, but, uh, uh, but it's yeah. just, a, it's nostalgic and it's a great time and it's fun and, you know, you get together with your friends and uh, light up the grill and do your thing. Oh, yeah. But, well, uh, uh, I'll tell you what. Uh, sobriety is wonderful, isn't it, David? It is. It is a wonderful thing. You know, because I have yet to feel like I'm missing, um, that I'm really missing out. Because yeah. these experiences are, you know, I, I don't have to navigate anything. Mm-hmm, in order mm-hmm. to enjoy them, you know, yeah, I don't have right, to think right, about right. how much I've had to drink or if I'm going right. to remember it tomorrow or any yeah, of that stuff. Yeah. It does help I mean, if that decision is made right beforehand, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't go up on the roof hoping that I uh, don't grab something to drink. Right, you know? sure. Yeah, it's just yeah. something I don't do, you know. Yeah. Hey, but we have got a, a great guest with a deep a uh, fund of wisdom and knowledge around sobriety and, uh, you know, asking some uh, perhaps unconventional or at least uh, in our part of the country, not very usual questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to be, I think, a very stimulating uh, conversation. Stay with us, listeners. It'll be just a minute. We'll return on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Oh, welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. I am really looking forward to this conversation, David. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Would you would you uh, introduce our guest? I will. Our guest today is Dr. Peg O'Connor, and she uh, wants us to call her Peg, so that's what we'll do. <laughs> and uh, Peg, Dr. O'Connor, uh, comes to us uh from Maine today via uh, Minnesota, I think. Um, but uh, she's spent uh, a good bit of the quarantine in Maine the last couple of years, but she is uh, a professor. But she's got an upcoming book uh, that I'm real interested in talking about called Higher and Friendly Powers, Transforming Addiction and Suffering. And I think that'll come out in August, she says. And I uh, welcome you, Dr. O'Connor, Peg, and I will quit calling you Dr. O'Connor as of now. So <laughs> I just want to establish that you worked really hard for those credentials and you deserve at least some acknowledgement on the front end. And then we'll be friends here from now on. So <laughs> that sounds like a plan. I mean, and my mother still does call me Dr. O'Connor on occasion. she's my mother she can do whatever she wants well that's right yeah and she's probably just that's probably just pride i mean (laughs) there you go sure i think it is yeah i have to ask peg have you been a year-round resident up there in maine i have been so when COVID hit in 2020 in may of 2020 i came out east my whole family's on the east coast and Mm -hmm. i live in minnesota and so i decamped and i've been here for the last two years teaching remotely, um, which has been an adventure or a misadventure, as the case may be. Um, (laughs) But I fully expect to be back in the classroom come uh, Labor Day. We start the day after Labor Day. So I will be laboring away in person again. Oh, man. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, we would love to hear your story, uh, especially as it relates to recovery. This is the the, uh, Positive Sobriety Podcast. And you've, you are quite familiar with 12-step recovery, and you have uh, ideas and thoughts to share, especially around higher power. But I'd love to know how you wound up in this track. How'd you wind up in this field? Yeah, how did I wind up in this field? Um, it's, it's an interesting story. So I have been sober for nearly 35 years. And for the wow. first 20 years of my sobriety, I had nothing to do with AA. And I still mm-hmm. dip in and out of AA. Um, I regularly say I love the people, but really struggle with the program. Mm-hmm. And I think part of the reason I struggled with the program is the the God language, the the higher power language, the equation of of 
uh, higher power with God. And I went to 13 years of Catholic school, so I had a lot of God language. And uh, I won't say that I'm a lapsed Catholic. I think at best I'm an agnostic. And um, I just think that there have to be as many ways out of addiction as there are into it. And, and I think my story in some ways isn't all that different from others. And we sober up in a variety of ways. And mm. one of the most important things I've learned is I need to be flexible in what I need in my recovery, that rigidity is oftentimes the enemy. So if you think only one program works or you must be sober this way, I think that's a potential setup for epic failure. So mm. after I'd been sober for about 20 years, I, I met some people who went to AA and I thought, well, I kind of like them. I can imagine hanging out with them. And so that's what got me into the rooms, but I'm in and out of the rooms. Um, mm -hmm. But I have enormous respect for the AA program. I have enormous respect for people who are very traditional AAers. And I have enormous respect for the people who have said, we want something like AA, but we need to change some of that language. So AA agnostica, for example, and other kinds of self-help and other help groups, I think are, are crucial to it. So for me, it's whatever works for someone is a valid method. And, um, and for me, what works is having a rich network of friends who are in recovery. And it's about um, always working on myself and always looking to acquire more self-knowledge and mm. continuing to work in this field of addiction studies where I've been working now for about the last dozen years. But for the first, you know, 15 years of my career, my life as an alcoholic and my life as a philosopher were completely segregated. Um, there was a wall between the two. And then I started thinking, you ding-a-ling, why aren't you using philosophy and addiction together? Because I happen to believe philosophy helped me to get and stay sober. So it was this kind of remarkable treasure trove in the Western canonical tradition that I thought there's really interesting stuff here because I have found people struggling with addiction to be some of the most philosophical people I know regardless mm -hmm. of whether they've had a philosophy class or no or not. So mm -hmm. those are the people I like to hang out with. Yeah. Oh. Well, how did philosophy um, shape your recovery? I think it was my studying of moral philosophy as an undergraduate. So I started drinking hard first year of high school and drank hard throughout high school and drank hard in college, but I would stop and start for athletic seasons. Mm -hmm. um, because I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't want to be hung over and be trying to play a match. And uh -huh. I, I knew that I had a problem pretty soon after I started drinking. I mean, I would say within six months, I knew I was drinking differently from my friends. I was feeling, you know, um, removed from them and removing myself from them because I knew that I was drinking differently from them. And as an undergraduate, I studied philosophy, and I remember reading the philosopher Aristotle, so around 350 BCE, and mm -hmm. he was really, in some of his work, concerned with one's moral character. And I remember reading his book, The Nicomachean Ethics, where in effect, your moral character, you come to have it because of what you do habitually and repeatedly to good effect or to bad effect. He said, no one is naturally born virtuous. No one is naturally born vicious. You make your character. And I had a clear sense then, you know, as a sophomore in college, how I was making my character and I didn't like what I saw. And so the moral philosophy part has always been so important to me about how do I think about my responsibility to others and to myself? How do I think about responsibility looking forward and not just looking backwards, you know, blame and shame and things like that. And I was also really intrigued by the categories of self-knowledge and self-love and self-forgiveness. And I'm still intrigued by all of those. And they're mm -hmm. deeply philosophical kinds of concepts. So I had those philosophical tools where I could ask myself, am I the person that I want to be? Is this the life that I want to live. And then I started reading the great Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard from the mid 1800s, mm -hmm. a very melancholic Dane, um, mm -hmm. who talks about the ways of despair. And he says, mm -hmm. interestingly enough, that happiness is despair's greatest hiding place. And he talked about the ways that um, great angst and despair are caused by these deep existential imbalances too much necessity over possibility, too much finitude 
instead of infinitude. And so I knew I was out of balance, but I didn't know what balance for me would look like. And so all of that was going on in my alcohol-soaked brain as an undergraduate. And my sobering up story, it was truly by accident, literally and metaphorically. I had a horrible car accident. I hadn't been drinking, but I would have been. Mm-hmm. And um, I was in the hospital in enormous pain and a nurse offered me pain medication. So this is in 1987. And I had the clear thought, Betty Ford, here I come, if I started taking yeah. pain medications. Mm. And at that moment, I understood myself to be making a choice. I don't want to be doing this anymore. So mm-hmm. I hadn't been drinking. And so I thought I'd see how long I could go without drinking. So I'm still running that experiment. And I think, too, that my not drinking was also a consequence of my having a severe concussion. I was too emotionally flatlined to even care about drinking. What I knew was Mm -hmm. I didn't care that I was alive. I didn't give a rip. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. here I was. So it took me a long time to kind of mentally and emotionally bounce back from that accident and from that concussion. But during that time, I had made the intentional choice not to drink. And so I still make that intentional choice not to drink. I think Mm -hmm. my recovery, I want it to be a lifelong phase and I'll Mm -hmm. do everything I can to make it be the case, but I never, ever take it for granted. Yeah. Well, Peg, I I have a, I have a question. I, what a fascinating story. I feel somewhat of a kinship with you. I'm a thinker. I lived in a philosophy house when I was in uh, I majored in religion, but lived in a philosophy house. Mm. Uh, and really tried to think my way out of addiction and wasn't able to do it. Uh, I got sober in 12-step recovery, and my sponsor said something that I've heard many times since. He said, you've been trying to think your way uh, to right acting. I'm going to show you how to act your way to right thinking. I'd love to get your feedback on that because I I don't think it's a dichotomy. It's a fair dichotomy. In my case, it worked Mm -hmm. or, or it was a part of the process. Uh, what's, what's your feedback on that approach? I think it's a both and you're right. Mm -hmm. It's a false dichotomy. And, and I think this is where Aristotle is helpful because Aristotle always ties together deliberation and freely choosing acts and Mm -hmm. acting in accordance with certain kinds of virtues. And those virtues help you to act in certain kinds of ways. So I, I know there's a saying in AA, fake it until you make it. That's somewhat right. You know, start doing these kinds of acts and then you will see that not just that good things come from them, but they feel good and right to do and you become more capable of doing them. So I think there's something accurate to say, yeah, you can't think your way out of an addiction. And I sometimes think that thinkers believe they're too smart to be addicts. Mm -hmm. Oh, that couldn't happen Mm -hmm. to me. Or, you know, I would know. There's a reason why highly educated people make the best marks for con artists. It's because they mm-hmm. think there's too smart. They're too smart, and nobody could ever pull the wool over their eyes. And so I, I think people who are who are thinkers and who who are um, people in the world where they think I've got too much going on to be an addict. That can't be me. I think there's a greater risk there. But for me, yeah. it's 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 got to be both. It's got to be intentional acting. You can't accidentally become sober. At some point, intention and a willingness to do things differently and a willingness to look at yourself differently and a willingness to look at your relationships. So it's all part and parcel. You know, is it a chicken egg? Which comes first? It may be. So long as it happens, I don't have a big investment in Mm -hmm. one or the other. Right. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Well, um, how do you define, um, Peg, the uh, higher and friendly powers, because uh, uh, that that interested me just even the front end of your of your title of your upcoming book, um, you know, higher and friendly powers. What what would those be um, in your in your estimation with with your experience? So if I could just take make a little um, take a little detour to say where that higher and friendly powers comes from. Yeah, a little mm-hmm. bit of a history lesson about AA. So Bill Wilson, when he had his big experience in 1934 in the Charles B. Towns Hospital, he has this big gust of spirit come over him. He says, my desire to drink is removed. And, mm-hmm. you know, a little bit later, he thinks, oh, my gosh, I'm losing it. 
So mm-hmm. was it hallucinations from Belladonna? Was it hallucinations from um, going through alcohol withdrawal? And a friend mm-hmm. gave him a book by William James, The Varieties <clears throat> of Religious Experience, that had come sure. out in 1902. And that book has, that book is wonderful. And it's enormous mm-hmm. encyclopedic treatment of people's intense first-person spiritual experiences. And there are some big, huge conversions like that, you know, gusts of spirits. Mm -hmm. And there are more common, ordinary ways that people undergo radical change over a long period of time. In that book, William James talks about higher and friendly powers. Anything larger will do if it helps you to take the next step in transforming yourself. Mm-hmm. And James, this book was actually a series of lectures that he delivered to a highly educated European audience in 1902. So he has all these examples of what we Christians call God. God mm-hmm. does these things. God causes mm-hmm. conversions. God appears as burning bushes. God appears and knocks mm-hmm. people off horses, all those sorts of things. He says, mm-hmm. but that's what we Christians call it. But there are all these other things that can function as higher and friendly powers a better version of yourself can be a higher power, mm-hmm. a sense of human decency, moral principles, patriotism, a sense that there's just something more out there in the world. And so the friendly part comes when each person who's maybe really hunkered down, they're feeling very, very embattled, the world is closing in on them, when they can even just have a glimpse or a touch of a continuity with those that something bigger, whatever it is, it's this friendly continuity. So the language of higher power as God as we understood him is a remarkable reduction or shrinkage of what had been an incredibly expansive term. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. my hope in this book that has a title, Higher and Friendly Powers, is to, well, give people more options for thinking about what might be a higher power for them. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, there are as many higher powers as there are people in the world or more. Because mm-hmm. anything that is larger, that helps you pull out of yourself and to be able to say yes to life is a higher power. And it's friendly. It's not antagonistic. It's not mm-hmm. hostile. You're not always on probation with it. So, you mm-hmm. know, the notion of, you know, say if you're a Catholic and you sin and you don't confess your sins, you're on the outs with God. And, you know, God could be a a God of um, retribution or something like that. Mm -hmm. So there's a friendliness there. And the most compelling example that James gives of higher and friendly power is Henry David Thoreau walking in Walden Pond on a misty morning and feeling a sense of not just connection, but communion with the pine needles, feeling Mm -hmm. like he and the pine needles are in communion, that he's a part of nature and they're a part of nature. Mm -hmm. What a very different understanding of higher power. Mm -hmm. So whatever a person chooses to have as something that's bigger than them, that helps them maybe lift their eyes up to the horizon and see more possibility rather than a kind of fatalism or a kind of indifference to things. Mm-hmm. That's all it takes. Yeah. Yeah. I have clients, Peg, that um, struggle, you know, very much at times with uh, what they believe they're being asked to embrace, you know, yes. in the in the higher power uh, conversation. And very often I tell them, you know, if they're in a group, can you believe that the greater good of the group, the collective good that these people have for you they're that they're there for you together um to support you to be your encouragement and strength and hope as they say um and um you know can 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 you believe that the greater good of the group uh for now is is your higher power is what you can surrender yourself to understanding, to hearing from, to, you know, um, is that similar to something you would encourage people to do? I would encourage people to do that for sure, but it kind of puts an extra burden on them to take an extra step to imagine. So if you are someone who is, I'm just going to say, you know, a straight line or main line, straight up kind of member of a Christian denomination, Mm -hmm. 
you can slot yourself into AA and it's going to work really, really easily for you. Yeah. Right. And if you're not, you might feel like you're being dishonest. Like, well, wait a minute. I don't believe all this God language. It yeah. feels alienating. So then you start looking for more differences rather than similarities. I mean, it does, yeah. it does put a burden on a person, but I know a yeah. lot of people who do that and they may keep the group as their kind of higher power, or they may come to see they have a higher power within them already. Mm-hmm. They can be a better person or they can be the person that they used to be. So sometimes I do feel like plenty of us have to hitchhike on someone else's notion of higher power because we can't generate it for ourselves yet. Or we don't trust whatever we might yeah. generate for ourselves because, well, if it comes from us, it's going to be pretty crappy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. or something like that, not to put yeah. too find a point on it, but, mm-hmm. you know, I think self-trust is one of the earliest casualties of a developing addiction. And it's one of the hardest things to get back. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Say that again for me. <laughs> self-trust. <laughs> self-trust is often one of the earliest casualties of a developing addiction. And it's one of the hardest things to get back. I think that's one of the hardest things to get back is -hmm. because we, we, we now have this built in confirmation bias, right? Well, if I did it, it must be stupid or, Oh my God, if it's my idea, look at all my other bad ideas. And you've got, you know, a long Mm -hmm. list of all of your failures and all of those Mm -hmm. failures are always going to be taken as the counterbalance. So, you know, anytime you think of something, it's got to be stupid or dumb or wrong. And it takes a while to begin to what, put some nuggets of self-knowledge and nuggets of self-trust onto the scales to start to balance it. But yeah, I, I think, I, I guess I would say self-trust and self-forgiveness are two of the hardest things for people struggling with addiction mm-hmm. to, to, to maybe have for the first time or to get back after they've lost them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because I've broken all these promises to myself repeatedly for you know how you know however long that that has gone on so you know i i i certainly went in believing i can't trust myself (laughs) um you know yeah but uh anyway yeah Every person engaged in the fight against alcohol addiction has their own reason for being involved. Maybe it's a husband or wife, a daughter or son, a mom or a dad, a best friend, a colleague, a job, a hobby, or just yourself. Whatever your reason for recovery, we're all in this together. On the Positive Sobriety Podcast, we understand that the opposite of addiction is connection. And our mission includes building a strong community and working together to break the stigma of alcohol addiction. That's why we've partnered with Soberlink to expand and strengthen our community even further. Soberlink is a remote alcohol monitoring technology created to help provide accountability for people in recovery. The system includes a high-tech breathalyzer device with facial recognition that allows you to share your sobriety in real time with loved ones who can offer support in the event of a slip or a relapse. Soberlink has helped hundreds of thousands of people document proof of sobriety in real time to help rebuild trust and foster peace of mind. Soberlink is currently building a strong community of people in recovery. Get inspired and inspire others today by joining the community at soberlink.com slash PSP. That PSP, of course, stands for Positive Sobriety Podcast. The link again is soberlink.com slash PSP. Peg, this conversation about the higher power, I I sense that this is one that's been going on in the background and whispered for a very long time. Uh, And it's a difficult one to kind of say out loud, especially in a Western Christian environment. But we do know that 12-step recovery has gone global. It has uh, 
it, you know, it's had profound effect in other cultures. And I think probably other cultures have had a profound effect on 12-step recovery in those areas that we, from our perspective, might not recognize or see. And I wonder if you have any insight into that, how, uh, you know, the core of that, that wonderful 12-step recovery has been expanded, you know, modified, uh, you know, in other places and by other people. Oh, I think it has become more inclusive, but there's such variation between groups. I mean, that's one of the wonderful oh, that's things true. about AA is yeah. that there isn't like a centralized, I know, I mean, there's the general services office, but it's not like there's yeah. a central corporate office and each group is like a franchise where here's right, the yeah, menu yeah. and here's yeah. and here's your decoration and here's what your napkins look like. So there's right, some yeah. variation with, in, within groups. So, you know, I've certainly been in groups where people don't say God out loud or they just mm-hmm. insert higher power. Some have tried to use the feminine pronouns instead, mm-hmm. or use the um, gender neutral third person pronouns instead. I mean, I think people really, really try to do it. I think there's always a tension though. And, and I think that um, this tension is very much a consequence of the original version of the big book. So the first 164 pages being codified where they decided you can't change anything in these 164 pages. And so Uh what that does in effect, if I can say it kind of makes it, makes it be like a a sacred text in a kind of way. Oh Um, yeah. And so, you know, most people other than nerdy little people like me and maybe you all, you read the, you read the big book because the big book is still taken and they've added more stories in, you know, they're trying mm-hmm. to diversify and be more inclusive and all that. And I say, yay, 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 I'm not. But as soon as you have those 164 pages treated as something as a sacred text, you've got something of a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So it isn't until the second appendix that Bill Wilson writes about spiritual experiences and he makes reference to the other kind of conversion that James talks about the kind of, he calls it a volitional conversion and, and Bill Wilson called it the educational variety, but most people don't have those big sudden aha kinds of moments. Mm -hmm. Most people kind of change their behaviors over time and, and their recovery and the reasons for recovery and then their intentional claiming of an identity of recovery doesn't look like the experience of Bill Wilson. So there's always a tension when one person's experience becomes mm-hmm. the foundation for a program. And William James was acutely aware of that in the varieties of religious experience. He, he called out that worry quite regularly. And I can understand why Bill Wilson used the concepts that he did. He adopted them in the way that they did. But unfortunately, it became exclusionary. And that still plays out. So the interesting bit of history about AA is when Bill Wilson pretty much wrote the big book by himself. Right. Um, There's a very strong argument to be made for that. And one of the early co-founders of AA was Hank Parkhurst. So he wrote the section about businessmen in the in the mm-hmm. big book. Hank Parkhurst ra- later goes out and relapses. So he kind of gets removed from the history of AA. But he was the businessman. And he, he made several important um, suggestions that Bill had the good sense to take. One of which was, hold on to the copyright of this book. Don't try to find a publisher for it. Publish it yourself. So the big mm-hmm. book is one of the most successfully self-published books ever. They didn't follow Hank Parkhurst when he said, you know, all this God language is really going to alienate some people. Can't you do something about this God language? And so the qualifier, God as we understood him, was Mm -hmm. taken as a kind of compromise. But if you are a non-Christian, if you are a woman, if you are a transgender person, if you, you know, all these different people who still wouldn't subscribe to that are always having to live their early days of recovery and translation. So I think that's back to what David asked me about, you know, what happens when people take the group as their higher power? It really depends depends on the particular people in that group and the ethos of that group meeting. Because you'll have some people who say, oh no, we must always end with the with the, the our father. And 13 years of Catholic school, I hear that prayer. One, I'm saying it in my head in Latin. Two, I'm saying in my head in English, I hate this prayer. So, you know, and even if it's issued, all who want to join, you know, please do so. 
Every mm-hmm. time I didn't join, I would always get these kinds of looks. Mm-hmm. Well, why mm-hmm. aren't you joining? Whereas yeah. for me, I'd rather end a meeting with the, you know, the responsibility statement. I am responsible when anyone anywhere reaches out for help. I want the hand of AA to be there. And for that, I'm responsible while we all look at each other. Mm-hmm. That to me is a much more powerful way to end a meeting. And some groups will say, yes, let's do it that way. And other groups are, nope, this is, well, look at, we always begin most meetings with how it works. Mm-hmm. It's very prescriptive. Yeah. Yeah, you know yeah, it is yeah, so yeah. it is so fun to me, uh, Peg, to talk about these um, these broader concepts of what um, higher power means, greater good, and all that. Um, my my personal experience coming from you know Nate and I live in the Bible Belt, you know, where everybody is a Christian or a Republican or they believe they should be, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, and, uh, so I don't, I don't identify as evangelical or Republican, but I'm a person that came from a very, very specific kind of, uh, conservative Christian upbringing. And so, um, I wrestled with all kinds of questions throughout my, throughout my drinking history. And I won't bore you with that whole thing, but the point being when I got to AA for me, for someone who comes in from my set of, uh, serving a, you know, a angry God and, uh, you know, God's always pissed and you better look out kind of stuff, uh, which I evolved out of a little bit before I got to AA. But, um, when I got to AA, it gave me a much broader permission Mm. to experience God in a more universal way, whatever he, she, they are, you know? Um, and, and so it's always, it's always kind of fun for me because I know everybody comes from different stories and backgrounds and there are different triggers for all of us. But, you know, for somebody like me, the 12 step group was, um, was, was broadening my permission to experience other ideas, watching, uh, you know, watching people, uh, experience change and transformation that didn't fit my old grid or my, my own perceptions that I was Mm -hmm. raised with and all of that. So I guess I'm just saying it's, it's fun because I like to hear, um, I like to hear how people who come from very different histories, um, experience it because for me, it was a, it was a freeing thing because it wasn't the very Mm -hmm. finite, narrow gate kind of, you know, Mm -hmm. approach to if you're, if you're going to be a spiritual individual with, uh, you know, uh, reconciled to yourself and God and peace with the world, uh, you know, it, it has to look like this. AA to me said, wow, there's this broad way that, um, the universe works in the lives and hearts of people. And um, maybe I've been, you know, trying to drive a semi down a dirt path or something by trying to make mm-hmm. this thing fit another way. So I don't know if that makes a lot of sense. No, I but- think that's I think that's great. And, and, I'm, and I'm always gratified to hear experiences like yours. Um, mm-hmm. I, I hear them less often than I hear the people like, oh, my God, I just couldn't do it. Or, you know, mm-hmm. I, I did grow up with a God who was, you know, smiting left and right and things like that. And, you know, they many people feel as if they needed something that was wholly different, that just mm-hmm. didn't have that kind of defining God feature of a program for recovery. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's why, you know, AA Agnostica exists, yeah. Smart Recovery, Life Ring, I mean, Craft. Yeah. I mean, there are so many other kinds of things, other kinds of programs that in many ways, AA got so much right. I mean, they got the promises right, what life looks like in recovery. And William James, a a lot of that comes from William James. You know, Mm -hmm. this raft of obstructions will be gone and your, your your, your lives won't be cycles of drama and repair and repent and lather, rinse, repeat. And, You'll 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 become a new person in all these different ways, and your worries, he said, will be severed like cobwebs and broken like bubbles. They'll just wow. they'll just they'll what just dissipate. I mean, and AA gets it right about what we do for each other in those rooms. Mm-hmm. You know how our story is part of a much 
broader base of stories and that there are differences in our stories, but that we learn from each other. And one of the most important things we do is we hold up mirrors to each other. Mm -hmm. So this was another thing that I thought about with philosophy, that I think those of us who have been addicts and are in recovery or have suffered other kinds of trauma, when we look inside ourselves or when we sort of look at ourselves or look inside ourselves, we're always looking at a funhouse mirror. Like we don't get it right about who we are or how we are. And one of the most important things that we do for each other in those rooms is we hold up, you know, a plain mirror, not a fun house, not a concave, not a convex mirror so that people can begin to see themselves. And I think oftentimes to go back to that self-trust piece, other people will say to us that we're trustworthy and we mm-hmm. have to kind of believe them until we can start to to generate that for ourselves. Or people will tell us how we've changed and we can't recognize that in ourselves because we still have all the old tapes running and we mm-hmm. still have sure. all that confirmation bias. But to hear someone say, you're my role model. I remember when I came into these rooms and I thought I really want to be like you. And then I heard that you were doing the same things I was or worse. And if, if, if you can do it, I hope I can do it. I mean, that imp- those important roles that we play for each other. AA absolutely gets that right hands down. That's mm-hmm. one of the, I think, the great strengths of the program mm-hmm. is what we do for each other. Yeah. 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 Would you say, Peg, that recovery uh, always happens uh, in, in community, that, that the opposite of addiction is connection? I think it's a very large part of it. I mean, and that's certainly what someone like Bruce Alexander would argue or, mm-hmm. or Johan Hari. Right, sure, right, yeah. Much of addiction comes from the suffering from being fundamentally dislocated and being isolated mm-hmm. or being, um, well, I'll, I'll use this language, you know, in systems of oppression where everything you mm-hmm. hear about people like you, you know, you're bad, you're deviant, you're wrong, you're criminal, you're less than, you're inferior. I mean, all those sorts of things. And that I would say that that connection with others is, is necessary, Ooh, but not sufficient. Here I go. I'm going philosophical. It's necessary. There you go. It's crucial. It's got to be there. But it isn't sufficient unto itself. Because I think each of us needs to learn how to know ourselves and be connected with ourselves. So Mm -hmm. going back to Kierkegaard, he says, the greatest hazard of all is losing yourself. You'll notice Mm -hmm. every other kind of loss first. If you lose five bucks, if you lose your sunglasses, if you lose your house in a depression, if you, you know, lose your, lose your dog, you don't notice when you lose yourself. And for me, addiction is one way that people lose themselves Mm. and they lose themselves in a very deep, profound existential kind of way. And I think it's true that we can find ourselves through connections and relationships, but each of us needs to be able to stand in relationship with him, her, or their own self. And I Mm. think that's the, the piece that maybe we don't pay enough attention to, or I, you know, I think it deserves more attention because self-knowledge is absolutely crucial for recovering from addiction. So mm. I guess, I guess there's another both and mm-hmm. Listen to yeah. me. it's both and yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I think that's, I mean, that's important. I think that, you know, we can't tell others the truth if we can't tell ourselves the truth first, you know, and I can't tell myself the truth if I don't know myself. Yeah, you gotta. Each of us needs to know what they're up against in their own self, and so I think that's important too in recovery because relapses don't just happen. Relapses tend to unfold over a period of time through small choices, intentional choices, and then Mm -hmm. some taking for granted. And if we're not being, you know, I, I think the honesty piece of AA is 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 right to a certain extent. If, if we're not able, if we're lying to ourselves, we are in trouble. And we lie to ourselves in all kinds of ways, not just, you know, the, the biggies, you know, rationalization, minimization, and denial. Mm-hmm. I think there are other forms of self-deception that we don't pay enough attention to. Like I think procrastination and perfectionism are two 
forms of self-deception. They're kind of covert. Yeah. Uh, perfectionism also might get you a lot of rewards on one account, right? I mean, mm-hmm, you're the hardest mm-hmm. worker. You're there longer than everyone. Your product is absolutely perfect. And, you know, procrastination, I think, is a form of self-deception because there's a gap between what you say you want and what you're willing to do to get it. And I think people procrastinate about their drug and alcohol abuse when they begin to think they need help. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll do it when I just got to get through this period or, oh, I'm going to research more treatment centers. You know, so one of your podcasts is about how do you find right treatment centers? I mean, all those sorts yeah. of things you can you can gather information until the cows come home. But if you never take the step of calling, there's that gap. So procrastination and perfectionism. So knowing yourself is is knowing knowing those things about yourself. And it's also about knowing your your strengths, your virtues. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that, yeah. that that's yeah. one thing that always worried me about AA was doing that uh, fearless and searching moral inventory. It isn't meant just to be a catalog of all of your defects. You've got right. to put your strengths in there as well. Again, the right. scales, the scales right. are going to yeah. boom slam down on the defect side for a good long time. But if you can't begin to identify some of your moral strengths and virtues, yeah, that's going to present a huge problem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. 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 A full inventory has to include assets as well as liabilities. Yes. And the, yes. Uh, yeah. I, the first time I did a oh, fourth step, you know, I wrote a federal indictment of myself and all oh, sure. I did was list. <laughs> and uh, thankfully I had a, I had a, I had a great sponsor who, who really sent me back to say, this is an incomplete inventory. And, yeah. and that's wonderful. And that's one of the things that William James says, he says, two things need to be in the mind of someone who's, who's trying to make a radical change in themselves. And he says, mm-hmm. one is a sense of the incompleteness or wrongness, the whatever is lacking in his, her, or their own ways of living. So you've mm-hmm. got to be able to list the negatives. Right. He said, but more important is having uh, an ideal which one longs to compass. So to have positive ideals that one can aim for. So I think Mm -hmm. one of the things about addiction is we stop thinking about possibilities in terms of being positive possibilities for people. I think really in the throes of addiction are always about more bad things happening or my doing more bad things to be able to have a positive vision of something, to have ideals, to have a kind of realistic hope in the ways to, to realize some of those ideals, to make good on them. He said, that's absolutely necessary for learning how to say yes to life. Uh, If you can only list all the negative things, you're always going to be saying no, 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 no. But when you've got a positive ideal that you long to kind of orient your life towards, that's when the change happens. And I think that's absolutely right. I think that was a brilliant insight from William James. And he knew a lot about addiction. He himself was not, but his brother with whom he was, extraordinarily close was in and out of to use the language of the time asylums for the inebriate for years on end you know he'd Mm -hmm. go in for five years he'd go in for two years and william james as a psychologist and philosopher and physician was never able to solve the riddle of addiction um but he certainly provided key insights that i think again to go back to bill wilson bill wilson's found a lot in there to use and he got a lot right yeah, and and I yeah. think that, you know, that is one thing that AA groups can help people to do is help them to shape a positive vision for themselves. Because left to our own devices, we are going to have a hard time doing that. So there's back to the, you know, the connection piece. Oh. Well, I, I can't think of a better way to wrap up an episode of the Positive Sobriety Podcast than that piece that you've just shared. Uh, Peg, Dr. O'Connor. Uh, we can't thank you enough for being generous with your time, generous with your wisdom. Uh, this is one of those episodes that I'm sure is going to be played and replayed by many of our listeners. Well, yeah. I appreciate this podcast. I appreciate your having me on it and all the work that you do. I mean, it is a service to the universe. So I thank you. Well, thank, thank you. you. And, and, and the book, again, is Higher and Friendly Powers, Transforming Addiction and Suffering. And out in August, look for it um, and, uh, and grab it. <laughs> grab it when you find Yay. it. I'm going to put my order in today. Yeah. All right. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. Listeners, 
Stay with us. We'll be back in a moment on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Um, Nate, I could have talked to... Dr. Peg O'Connor for another hour. I really could have. I think that yeah. was uh, so interesting. And her insights are spot on to me, um, resonated with an awful lot of what, what she was talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, what of what I love is it, she, has, she has a deep acquaintance with and understanding of, she studied AA. She has a deep appreciation for AA, mm-hmm. but she doesn't worship AA. Right. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. uh, and she wants to, if, if there's, if, if she has a thought that anybody is being kept out of the room because mm-hmm. of something that's going on in the room, she wants to see what she can do to bring that person in. I think that's great. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And, uh, you know, her points about knowing ourselves, um, mm-hmm. being so, so critical in, in being honest with ourselves, which is a very hard thing for me when I first got in the rooms, you yeah, know, sure, right. uh, to, I, I still wanted to sort of have sobriety and keep my persona, you know, just like, can we just, can we just get the dings knocked out of this persona and, and buff it yeah, out right. a little bit and send me back into the game? Cause yeah. that's really what I know. You know, this, yeah. this person I've invented to hide behind. Mm-hmm. Um, and as she pointed out, you know, we've got to, we've got to know the deep, dark truth yes. uh, in ourselves to embrace the reality of our, um, of our, of our, own need uh for for yeah uh, being being rescued so to speak yeah sure um, yeah yeah you know so i but i i loved her uh her way that of of uh, bringing philosophy and dovetailing it mm-hmm. with her own recovery and and the, mm-hmm. all of that that was uh is very valuable to me yeah well, uh, sad to say, I think we're already coming to the close of this episode. We do want to remind our listeners that we depend on you for mm-hmm. feedback and for suggestions. Uh, and you can always reach us. You can contact us by email at positive sobriety podcast at gmail.com. So, uh, yeah, take a minute. And uh, don't forget, wherever it is you have found this podcast, you can help make us more visible and reach more people just by taking a couple seconds and uh, rating this podcast. You know, I, I, I know how I want you to rate it, rate it, rate it high. <laughs> uh, yeah, we prefer a lot of stars, but you know, whatever works. <laughs> whatever works. Be honest. That's uh, right. That's right. Okay. Well, I think that's it for this time. Until next week, I'm Nate. And I'm David. And we are your pals on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. The Positive Sobriety Podcast is recorded at Crossroads for the Nations in Brentwood, Tennessee. Live producer Rex Schnelli, music by Rex Schnelli, theme music by Matt Ulrich, uh, hair and makeup by Lyle Lovett, uh, wardrobe <laughs> by Kathy Gifford. 